Uh, there's an old legend about the Apostle John, uh, the one who wrote this letter we've been looking at. Uh, he was the longest surviving disciple of Jesus, the Twelve. Uh, in fact, John lived well into his 90s, which was pretty unusual back then, especially if you were a Christian. The year was sometime around AD 90. Most of the other disciples had been executed. John survived. Uh, and this story that's recorded for us in the early church fathers is that each week they'd carry him into various church meetings in the cities around Ephesus on a stretcher, this frail old man. And every week they'd carry him down the front and a hush would come over the room and they'd hang on his every word, this last living disciple of Jesus. And every week he'd say this, little children love one another. And then he'd lie back down on his mat and they'd carry him out. Carry him out. Every week the same message, little children love one another. One day, the story goes, someone asked him, John, why is it every week you say exactly the same thing? Little children love one another. And John said, because it is enough. There's other stuff he could have said, but why waste words? Someone at his age has only got so much energy. But for him, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. If you put your trust in Jesus, there's one other thing you need to be doing. And so week after week, he'd remind them, little children love one another. You don't need to work at being the smartest in the room or the bravest or the hardest working or even the most moral or the most gifted. All you need to know, little children love one another. Well, that's just a story. (laughs) But when you look at what John writes here, you, you can understand why it might actually be true, I think. Because... That's exactly the message he keeps repeating. Uh, Here in this chapter and on into the next chapter, love one another. You can see it, verse 11, right at the start of the the section Alicia read for us. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. That's the message I told you way back and I'm still telling it to you. And then down in verse 23, towards the end of that section, this is the command to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and when you've done that, love one another as he commanded us. If you read right through this chapter and into the next one, again and again, same message. And the thing John is saying is this, trusting Jesus and loving one another go together. You can't have one without the other. There is no such thing as a loveless Christianity. Remember, it's all in the context of identifying who the real Christians are and who the pretenders are. It doesn't matter what the pretenders say, if they don't love the brothers, then they don't love God. If there's no love, there's no Christianity. But I guess it's important, uh, those of you students who are learning how to write essays, you always learn to find your terms. Well, it's important we define what we mean by love, I think. These days you need to be careful when you're talking about love, because these days love is everywhere you look in every form, in every song on the radio, at the movies, in the magazines, in the gay marriage debate. Love is love meant something like, I've got the right to feel whatever I want for whoever I want, which makes love seem a little more selfish than the way most of us would define it. So before we start talking about loving one another, let's understand what the Bible means by love. Because you see, I love apples. And I love cricket. 
and I love a, a movie. But that's not the sort of thing John's talking about here, is he? He's not talking about what you prefer or what you're attracted to, and he's not even particularly talking about feelings. John gives us concrete examples of what love is. First, a counterexample, what love isn't, then a positive, what we should be like. Opposite extremes. So firstly, have a look at verse 12. John goes all the way back to the start of the Old Testament to tell us what not to be like. He says, don't be like Cain. Cain, firstborn son of Adam and Eve. His brother Abel was righteous. Cain was jealous. God accepted Abel's sacrifice but didn't accept Cain's. Cain was jealous, so he killed him. Now that, says John, is the way the world works. Striving to be first, best, richest, always comparing, always dragging others back so you can get ahead of them. That's the way the world works. Maybe not murder, maybe less subtle, maybe ridicule or gossip or spite or envy or resentment or competitiveness. John says, don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Because he says in verse 15, that's exactly what hating is. Hating is murder. He says, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you, because the world is like Cain all the time, hating and attacking. But be surprised if your Christian brother hates you, because it shouldn't be that way. It's not natural. And for John, it's at the core of the difference between God's people and the world. It's the way you will know that you've changed sides from death to life. Uh, the new uniform you put on is love. He says in verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. People who used to annoy us, suddenly we find they're not annoying us. People we would cross the street to avoid, we now will sit down and have a cup of tea with and listen to. People we didn't give a thought to, we now pray for every day. That's how you know you've passed from death to life. It's one of the key indicators of being a genuine Christian. If you're not doing it, if you're hating your brother, which you may not think of as hate, but perhaps it's ignoring them, ridiculing them, dismissing their opinion without listening, not bothering to meet with them. Maybe that's what hating looks like for you then maybe you need to have a good look at yourself. Hating your brother, John says, is serious. You can't dismiss it as simply, we just don't get on. John says, hating your brother is murder. Well, love is a whole lot more than not hating, isn't it? That's the negative. Cain is the negative. What's his positive? Well, you can see it in verse 16. You want to know what love is? Here's a perfect walking, talking example. The most complete human who ever lived. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now will you notice this is no Hollywood style romance love. This is crucifixion style. Christ style love. The symbol of love isn't a squishy little heart or Cupid firing arrows. The symbol of love is a cross. 
Love is self-sacrifice. Jesus chose death for a world who hated him. He took God's judgment on himself so we didn't have to. That's the definition of love. It's why Christians wear crosses. It's why crosses are on the top of churches because the cross is a perfect symbol of what love is like, of what we have been shown. Love is laying down your life for someone. But here's the crunch. John says, don't just sit back in comfort and applaud Jesus that he's loved you. We too ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Second half of verse 16. And so if you've been sitting there patting yourself on on the back for how loving you are, then let that sink in for a moment. Love means laying down your life for your Christian brothers and sisters. Love means letting yourself get ripped off by someone because you've been taken advantage of because you're showing love. Love means giving up your rights for somebody else. Love means doing without so someone gets to use what you've worked for. That's laying down life love. Laying down life love means apologising first, turning the other cheek, happily moving to the end of the queue so others can be served first. Laying down life love is wasting your time and your money and your energy and your emotions on someone who needs them, someone who soaks them up and soaks you dry in the process and then to come back the next day for more. Well, let's think about marriage. What's love look like in marriage? I often hear this excuse in troubled marriages, but I don't feel like I did when I first got married. I don't love him anymore, comes straight after. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. And that's of enough of a reason to leave. But if love is laying down your life for your partner, then it doesn't depend on how you feel. Laying down life, love, means keeping on, keeping on, whatever you feel, however you're taken for granted. Whenever you feel your needs are not being met, you keep loving. Whenever you feel your kindness isn't being reciprocated, you keep on loving. Or if you feel you're not being listened to or appreciated or you don't think the other person deserves your love, laying down life, love, keeps loving. Well, perhaps you think, well... That's all too hard, Dave. You're not realistic. That's just too tough. I don't know if I can keep doing that anymore. Of course it's hard. If it was easy, everybody would do it. The world would do it if it was easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be love that separates Christians from non-Christians. If it was easy, 40% of marriages wouldn't be ending in divorce. There's all sorts of theories about why churches normally have more women than men. There's an opinion out there that Christianity is for women. It's a crutch for the weak. It's got a reputation as being soft and easy for people who can't cope on their own and if church was a lolly, it would be a marshmallow. I think part of that is to do with this wrong view of what love is. 
The church talks about love and people assume it's soft and soppy and romantic love. And there's, you know, you look at a stained glass window and there's Jesus who's got long flowing locks and he's got a baby sitting on his knee and we think that's what love is. But if love, and it is, but if love means following Jesus, if it means laying down your life for your Christian brothers and sisters, that's a challenge. That's real man's work and real women's work too, for that matter. That sort of work is challenging and difficult. It's a task you can give your life to. That's real Christianity. That's muscular Christianity. If that version of Christianity and love was a lolly, it wouldn't be a marshmallow. It'd be a rock candy. It'd be a jawbreaker. That's love. Maybe we need to be getting that message out about what a challenging, tough, revolutionary lifestyle Christians are called to. Maybe it would strike a chord with Aussie men. You can do what's called a tough mother obstacle course. You pay $100 to be absolutely smashed for two hours while you run through mud and climb over obstacles and get completely covered. People pay good money for that. I don't understand that. But maybe we needed to say, that's the Christian walk. We might get men signing up for it if that's what we said it was like. John goes on to be practical. Our love for one another has to be practical. Verse 17, giving up your possessions. I mean, we get them and we hang on to them, don't we? We lock them up, we secure them. But John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has not pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Now, he's not just talking about feeling sorry or mouthing a few easy words. That's not what he means by having pity. He means if you sit there in your comfort and luxury with all your possessions around you and watch a Christian brother and sister in need and do nothing about it, you haven't even started to understand what love means. You haven't started to find out what crucifixion love is all about. I reckon in our age of globalisation and instant communication, this is way more challenging for us than it was for John's readers. Because we see our brothers and sisters in need everywhere, instantly. Just test yourself for a minute. Ask yourself, what material possessions would you be actually prepared to give away to someone in need? Imagine, in your mind's eye, walking around your house, going room by room. What luxury would you give up to help a brother in need? Your TV, your dishwasher, your laptop, your lounge, your car. Jesus gave up his life for you. You can't do everything, but you can do something. You can't do everything, but you can do something. Love has to be more than lip service. We can all do that pretty well, can't we? See what he says in verse 18? Dear children, let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Don't just talk about it. Do something. You can't do everything, but do something. Something that's real. I think that's what the do it in truth means, not vague and fake and words, real, concrete. 
Support a missionary. Help a single mum in the next street. Help a uni student. Have a think about our church. Who do you know who's got a need? How can you show practical love? Project Help, that's what we're trying to do there. A way to connect a need with a practical, loving, helping hand. We've got this database that's probably a bit outdated at the moment. I haven't had time to update it. But the idea is we have this list of what gifts and capacities people have to be able to help others. And when we find out a need, we match up the need with the solution. Now on our own, we can't meet all the needs around us. But together, we can begin to do something real and practical. That's the idea. Well, those three verses, I don't know about you, but they're pretty tough to hear, aren't they? These three hard-hitting punches. Verse 16, Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. We ought to lay down our lives. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Bang, bang, bang. I don't know if you're anything like me at this point, but I read those three verses and my thoughts... Rather than go to the times when I have loved like this, go to the times when I haven't. I think about the times I've said I'll help or pray for someone, but then I get distracted or I simply don't follow through. I think about the times when rather than pity someone, I've felt judgment or superiority or frustration or impatience. I think about the times I've consciously chosen selfishness over sacrifice and called it healthy boundaries. I've chosen hoarding over helping, words over action. I've got one standard for how I want people to treat me and another for how I actually treat others. The gap between my expectation and the reality is yawning between the quality of my love for people and the love Jesus showed me. There are times, if it was up to my performance, I'm not sure that I'm really living up uh, to being a Christian. If I'm honest, I look at my own performance and my heart doubts, especially when I read those three verses. And I think perhaps you're probably like me, at least some of the time. But I want you to look at what John says next in verse 19. Straight after a few of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible. This then is how we will know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. That God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, first question uh, to answer is in which direction does the this point? Does it point back to the previous verse or does it point forward to the end of verse 20? If it points back uh, to verse 18, then John is saying, loving with actions and truth, love with actions and truth, this is how you will know that you belong to the truth. What he's saying is, when we actually do love in actions and in truth and not just words, that shows we're truly Christian. Now, that's not wrong. In fact, verse 14, I think, says something very similar. 
We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. Now that's true. But I actually think that this points forward to verse 20. And so John is starting a new thought. This is how you will know you belong to the truth and and how to set your heart at rest in his presence whenever your heart condemns you. That God is greater than your hearts. God knows everything. It's the same construction back in verse 12. This is the message you heard. Love one another. The this looks forward. It's the same thing in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The this looks forward. Once again, verse 23. This is his command to believe in the name of his son. The the this points forward. And so I think it's the same in verse 19. The this is pointing forward to verse 20. Now, if that's right, let's ask the question. How does the truth that God is greater than your hearts and knows everything, how does that help to set your heart at rest in his presence when it condemns you? Here's what I think. John knows how hard it is for us to love the way Jesus loved. He knows that we'll fail at that. He knows the reality that we'll sin. He knows that we're not yet what we will be. He knows that when we fail, we'll be tempted to doubt that we're God's children. But here's his advice. When that happens, when your heart condemns you, don't focus on your own performance. Focus on God's character. He's greater than your doubting, condemning heart. His grace trumps your sin. His judgment matters more than your judgment of yourself. He knows the reality. His spirit has anointed you. His spirit lives in you. Here's one other point. I think it's important to distinguish between John's test of love and his command to love. The test is verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. I think the test is that you just love them. Not not perfectly, not consistently, not as well as you might, but you love them. That's the test. Certainly compared to the love that the world has for people. But then John's command in verse 16... I don't want to say aspirational, but it's, it's something like that. It's saying, there's the goal. That's what you want to be heading towards. You ought to lay down your lives, verse 16. Let us love with actions and truth. That's the goal. That's, don't make that the test for whether you belong. Our heart wants to make those the tests, and so they'll condemn us. But God is greater than your condemning heart. The very fact that your heart mourns over your lack of love is evidence that God is at work in you. His spirit is pricking your conscience to mourn at your own lack of love. So set your heart at rest, says John. Don't be so hard on yourself. And then verse 21, he says, and then you can be confident when you pray. Look at verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, We have confidence before God. We receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. John says, come to God confident in prayer. Not confident because of your own performance, not because of the strength of your love, 
but because God is greater than your heart. Trust his mercy and his justice. Don't trust your love and your obedience. Come like the tax collector in the temple, not the Pharisee. And when we are actually living for him and following the example of Jesus' love and living in Jesus, then one of the fruit of that will be that we actually ask for the things that will please God. We do what pleases him and we ask for the things that please God. And God loves to give us those things. Well, in John's mind, Christianity is pretty simple. Verse 23, this is what God wants. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him and love one another as he commanded us. It's simple. It's just hard to do. And so we need to keep encouraging one another and reminding one another that that's what it's all about. We need to keep looking to God with confidence that comes from his mercy and goodness. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for John's words. Uh, In lots of ways they're easy to understand uh, but hard to trust, hard to do. We need your help. Uh, We thank you too for the promise uh, that you are greater than our condemning hearts, our self-condemning hearts. Uh, And so we come to you confident, uh, not confident in our own abilities, uh, but confident in your mercy and your equipping and your forgiveness. And so we ask you to bless us and to grow us and to make us like Jesus and to keep us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.